Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Tellich Talks. And this is a real special one for me. It is with a longtime friend, colleague, and fellow, quote, journalist, broadcaster, writer, just an all-around character and tremendous figure in the Cleveland media scene over the past, gosh, 40, 50 years now. Danny Coglin is my guest this week on Tellich Talks. We met at the Winter Olympics in 1980 in Lake Placid, New York. I was very aware of Danny. He was a big time sports writer at the Cleveland Plain Dealer at the time. And I was a young, budding television broadcaster. And we met there, and little did I know, in wintertime 1980, that within the span of just a couple of years, I would become a colleague of his at Channel 8 here in Cleveland and would work with him all of these years. The weekends that we covered, all kinds of big sporting events, all the way up until this year where Danny was still on our gang on Friday nights to cover high school football on our popular show, Friday Night Touchdown. He has had so many opportunities to cover some of the biggest things in the world of sports when he was a big time sports writer at the Plain Dealer. So we talked about all kinds of things, but a lot of times in my interviews with athletes and coaches and people in the world of sports, we talk about a moment in their life, kind of like that fork in the road where things changed for them. And December, I shouldn't say December, pardon me, November 22nd, 1963, that was the date for Danny. I'm sure you all know what that date means in American history, but it has even more and special significance for Dan Coglin. Hope you enjoy our little chat. And as always, please subscribe on iTunes and rate the show and obviously share it if you think it's something you'd like to do. Dan Coglin here on Tellich Talks. With the esteemed journalist, longtime sports writer, and longtime colleague, Danny Coglin. Great to have you on the show, Danny. And and I, I will say this, Danny. We've known each other for about 40 years. Yes. We met at the Winter Olympics mm-hmm. in Lake Placid in 1980, and it's just been great knowing you and working with you, and and uh, I'm sure the feeling is mutual, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is, John. What an honor to be on your podcast. <laughs> well, it more it's more of an honor for me to be with you. And uh, as anybody who's listened to this in the past may realize, sometimes we just interview folks, athletes, uh, coaches, people in, in the sports world for the most part, who have had kind of a defining moment in their life. And yours uh, happened when you were a very young man, and it coincided with one of the most epic historical days in American history. Yeah, John, I was 25 years old. I'd been drafted into the Army in 63 off my first newspaper job. And now as my two-year hitch, in the 1st Armored Division, Fort Hood, Texas, was coming to a close. A very boring two years. (laughs) You know, nobody shot at us. This was 61 to 63. And uh, so I wrote letters to newspapers to get back in the business. When I got out, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch wrote back. Said we'd like to. Were they the only one? Or many wrote back? No, they were the only ones that really wrote back saying they'd like to talk to me. Gotcha. Because they had an opening for a general assignment reporter. And... uh, and here I was, I, I wrote letters to John to papers 
all over the world. The English language paper in Tel Aviv, the English language paper in uh, in uh, Sao Paulo, in really? uh, yeah, in Rio de Janeiro, all around the world. I had the wanderlust. I wanted to travel. Anyway, the St. Louis this Post. Where you go? You ended up back in Lakewood. Yeah, yes, I did. <laughs> anyway, the Post Dispatch wrote back and said they'd like to interview me, and this worked out fine, because. Um, I, we set it up for, I, wrote, I would ride north when we were, the whole 1st Armored Division, which was uh, drafted because of the Berlin Wall, the, now we're all getting out. And so uh, two other fellows, they were going to drive north to the east coast, and so they could drop me off in St. Louis. Okay. And so I set it up with the managing editor. Everything was writing letters back then. And, uh, okay, let's do it the, at the, the day after I'm discharged from the Army. And uh, the, I was discharged on November 21st, 1963. Okay. And so we set it up for 2 o'clock in the afternoon on November 22nd, a Friday. So these guys, they, two other guys, they dropped me off in St. Louis, Statler Hotel, and at 6 o'clock in the morning. We'd, by the way, the night before, we drive through Dallas, through that very same underpass, right through Dealey Plaza, wow. not knowing that it was going to become a famous place wow. within 24 hours. Anyway, so they dropped me off at Statler Hotel. I got a room, <clears throat> got a few hours of shut-eye, room for $6.50, soldier in uniform. So <laughs> It's okay, you can cough. <coughs> That's that damn little tumor. Anyway, so I'm getting out of the shower about 1230 and uh, got the TV on, as everybody did, just for company. Noontime programming. KMOX TV in St. Louis, 1963, a lady playing the piano. She stops playing, and an off-screen voice says, John F. Kennedy has just been shot in Dallas. Wow, so I'm hearing the brief details. We were there last night, right through that same place. So anyway, I know there's going to be no job interviews uh, today. Everything is all hands on deck. So I called, and we agreed that, well, I'd fly home in the morning, and I call in about a week and we'll reschedule the interview. So, okay, Saturday morning I flew back home. And uh, Sunday morning, after the 12 o'clock mass at St. Clements in the middle of Lakewood, run into an old family friend, Ralph Novak. He had once been uh, a reporter for the Cleveland News. And he still had all these contacts. And so we're telling him my update. And he says, well, uh, Gordon Cobbledick is an old friend of mine. He has an opening in the Plain Dealers Sports Department next month. John Dietrich is retiring. So he said, I'll call him. So Monday morning, I'm calling Gordon Cobbledick. He invites me down for an interview. Don't I get the job? Wow. They're still waiting for me to call them back in St. Louis. <laughs> don't and, you still know their number? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't even know if they've got anybody left to answer the phone there. Because, <laughs> well, so that, anyway, that, I wind up, instead of winning a Pulitzer Prize um, at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I wind up working at the Plain Dealer Sports Department. First, my first job, answering phones and cutting up the race results. And uh, and that was it. I've been there 18 years at the Plain Dealer. Happy years. Yeah, they were. Uh, and yes. and, and you, you covered an abundance of different types of stories, whether it was oh, softball, John, John, pro it was, sports. Uh, saw the movie Ford versus Ferrari a few nights ago. Okay. Nice. Well, it's about the 1966 24 Hours of Le Mans. You covered that? I covered it. Yes. And I was, yes. How close was this? It, it was, anyway, it was a Ford swept Ferrari in a grudge match between Henry Ford and Enzo Ferrari or whatever his name was. Yes, I was there. 
in Le Mans, France. Yes, I couldn't speak a word of French. <laughs> anyway, so I think the, the big things I've covered. John, this Such is... Such as. Okay. Um, I know your one story about the 64 championship. Uh, you covered the, the, the Colts locker room. Correct? Yes. The losing oh, yeah. Colts locker room. And yes. the reason I bring it up is to bring that... Uh, story to what we have today with thousands of oh media and God, cameras yes. and you had what in that locker room that day? We had about five other reporters in That the, was it. We had Don Shula This is the six, Browns 64 championship game. First Browns game I covered for the Plain Dealer was the 64 title game. Not <laughs> you should have quit while you were <laughs> yes, ahead. Yes, you're right <laughs> <laughs> so, should the, so should Art Modell yes. Anyway um, Yeah, I, I had the, the losing locker room and so uh, yeah, Don Shula sat there on a big equipment trunk in the middle of the locker room. Just All they had, by the way, were 33 players, and so the locker room was big enough. Nowadays, they got 50-some players in uniform. Those locker rooms were never big enough. Anyway, so that's where we interviewed Don Shula. Wow. Yes. Nowadays, it's all done on big closed-circuit television screens in a huge stadium. So uh, that, that was 1964. Later on that spring, by the way, when Tom Place who was our hockey writer and Olympic guy, why he went off to uh, France or someplace and uh, covered the uh, uh, the Winter Olympics of six of '64. There was to, uh, and that was uh, Zipporah, wherever it was. Right? No, 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 it was up somewhere in the Alps. Anyway, uh, and so I covered the Barons for him. Son of a gun. The Barons go on to win the Calder Cup. They win nine straight games without a loss in the playoffs. What a great! It's the Coglin oh, factor. My God. <laughs> That is amazing. Yes, yeah, so anyway, we go on, and uh, 1968. Um, no, 1966. One of the biggest, the, the one of the first games of the century. Notre Dame-Michigan State for the national championship. That was a 10-10 tie, no? Yes, it was. I'm there. And and uh, then later on, uh, um, Frazier and Alley, Madison Square Garden, I'm there, ringside. All right, take us, back, to, okay. take us back to just, because I don't, I don't know if young journalists would even fathom what it may have been like to be really Im- immersed in the the boxing game, the way you were oh. back then with, you know, Don the Don Kings about ready yes, to emerge yes. and all these characters yes. and, and what it was like just to cover boxing back in that era. John. With it, Ali it, being who he yeah, was. Yeah, boxing was a great beat to cover back. Nobody... Young reporters, even then, they weren't interested in boxing. I always was interested in it. And what, what was the the appeal to you? Well, characters. No, no, the characters. But see, as I'm growing up, I'm growing up with Joe Lewis and and the heavy heavyweight title fights on the first when they first started emerging on television. And my grandmother really was a big fan of uh, 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 the light heavyweight who became the heavyweight champ. Uh, Floyd Patterson? No, no, before Floyd Patterson. Before uh, Marciano. Oh, uh, Sugar? Yeah, yeah, Sugar the, um, It's going back a few. Yeah, his real name was Arnold Cream. I remember his real name, but but uh, anyway. The, why do I suddenly go blank on his name? Because these were my guys. But you but, covered them all but the But anyway, time? yes, I grew up with a fan of, like, um, Joe Lewis and those guys. And uh, later on, of course, I got to know James E. Doyle. Uh, old-time box, boxing writer for the Plain Dealer, and he told me stories about covering the long count in, uh, was it Philadelphia? Anyway, the the Dempsey-Tunney long count and all those, he covered them for the Plain Dealer. And so uh, 
that that was the those were the major events in the world of sports. Boxing was big back in as I'm growing up. Not so much by the time I'm in the business, but I. I had a great time with the characters. Don Elbaum, our boxing promoter here. Yes. You remember Don. I remember he'd come here into the station every yes, once in a would. while and he'd yes. be shouting, where's that Dan Cock? Oh, we're, no. <laughs> but anyway, oh, he, uh, he, I fell in love with Don Elbaum. He was, he owed everybody in town. When his car got blown up, he was, the uh, police chief asked him, uh, you know, do you have any enemies? And uh, he says, do you got time? Sit down, I'll tell you. And he as somebody said, you better better got get better get a bodyguard. And he said, what I need is a is a driver. <laughs> someone, someone to start my car. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so I, I, th- those are great. Uh, covering the fight game, you can have fun with those guys. Um, and I, like everything else, all, all has changed. Let's get back to uh, the college football game. Okay. That I covered. All right. Well, I think you 19- left us off at the ten ten tie with yes, right. Michigan State and Notre Dame. Yeah, but Dame. then went on to. I'm thinking the. Let me see. I covered Notre Dame national championship games in the Cotton Bowl against Texas, in the Sugar Bowl against Alabama, in the Orange Bowl against Miami. I did just didn't cover, uh, you know, Muskingum against Hiram. No, these were didn't. major college national interest games. And you did it when and the newspapers were in their absolute heyday. You, you bet. And you know. Back then, I would call someplace to get credentials for a game. And uh, that's a Cleveland Plain Dealer. Oh, oh, they immediately perked up. Plain Dealer was recognized coast to coast. And uh, in fact, I was there when the Plain Dealer, beca- we're not going to turn this into a Plain Dealer uh, program, right. I'm sure, but when the Plain Dealer caught the press in circulation. You know, when I started at the Plain Dealer, the Cleveland Press was still the biggest paper in Ohio. And that was Cleveland the afternoon press, paper? The ap- yes. And uh, and Hal Lebovitz really wanted to catch them because Tom Vale wanted to catch them to put on the masthead of the Plain Dealer, Ohio's, uh, large. Lowest, Ohio's largest paper. And so we did it. And it started 1967 when we and we were inching up on them. And Hal Lebovitz was a brilliant guy. Had all these these promotional ideas to sell papers. And uh, he had a great one in the fall of '67. Let's select the favorite coach. Remember that? I don't know. You you may. Maybe you don't. Anyway, the, there were ballots printed in the paper about four days a week about how often is the play dealer publishes today. Anyway. <laughs> they, Dig. They, they said, so, uh, son of a gun, if Joe Trevisano doesn't run, come off to an early lead, Joe Trevisano, Steve Trevisano's father, yeah, he the, was coaching the football coach, Steve Trevisano. He Trivisano. was a Collinwood coach. Yeah. Collinwood hadn't won anything in 10 years. But that that year... Collinwood opens the season against Shaw. Shaw was the plane. I would do the ratings for the plane dealer. Shaw, Shaw was number one in our preseason rankings. As sort of a something, we tossed them a bone because the year before, everybody, a lot of people thought they were the best team, but we gave it to Benedictine to justify the charity game. Anyway, anyway um, so when when Collinwood knocks off Shaw in a torrential downpour, a monsoon at, I don't know if it's Patrick Henry Field or Shaw Field, one of them, solid mud up to your ankles. Of course. And yeah. uh, the game will wound up 6 nothing, with Collinwood winning. And Buddy Schultz was the Collinwood quarterback. He was out with a broken ankle. He was, he a, pit, he was a pitcher, went right. on to major league. Oh, yeah, he was, he was an all-scholastic quarterback, too. Anyway, so we get back into the, uh, the office on Monday, and Chuck Webster and Dick Sutton were on the beat with me, and 
I suggested, why don't we make Collinwood number one in our ratings because they beat the number one. They said, they're not that good. I said, I know they're not that good, but look, at they're going to lose to Cathedral Latin. They're going to lose to Benedictine. They might even lose to John Adams. Let's give them a week of glory. The week of glory lasted all season. They never lost. John, they would win every game, 7-6, to 12-10. to 10. 10 it was, to Yeah, right, some... yeah. So anyway, they're number one all year in the Collinwood neighborhood. They were in a frenzy. And so they were um, stuffing the ballot box. The the owner of the LaSalle Theater. Hey, we get that nowadays for the Fox 8 Game of the Week, right? We do, really? Well, it's not ballot boxes, it's the cyber box. Those are really high numbers, aren't they? Incredible numbers. How how these kids get together to vote for these games. It's amazing. Well, that's... And you had the same thing. Okay, this was now with paper ballots. Yep. 67. And, uh, you know, he's going up against Bill Gutbrod from St. Joe's, uh, Augie Basu from Benedictine, John Wirtz from Ignatius, you know, know, all All the the uh, Don Drebus from Shaw, all the regulars. So he he rolls into he wins it and the prize was we're going to send you to Pasadena to watch the Rose Bowl game, which was appropriate. Joe Trevisano, neighborhood hero, had played for Shaw, had played for Ohio State in a Rose Bowl game, so this is great. So Joe and Sally uh, Trevisano off they go to Pasadena. Chris, New Year's Eve, I'm answering, this was how my life was going, I'm answering the phones in the sports department on, on New Year's Eve. So I pick it up, and it's Joe. He said, oh, we're having a wonderful time. He said, thanks again. But uh, he said, where did we get our tickets for the game? And I said, Joe, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. There were no, no tickets. tickets. We had put Joe and Sally with a group, of, a, a local <laughs> uh, travel agent, put together a group of about 60 people, or 50, a busload of people, and... Uh, Set him out there. This guy then disappeared. They had a wonderful time. They had all these activities. But none of those people got to go to the game? None of them. No ticket. Per, no. And so we sent Joe Trevisano to Pasadena to watch the Rose Bowl game on television. Black and white. <laughs> in, the, in the hotel. This is crazy. Well, anyway. You, you had competitions like that all the time to get more That's readers. right. Oh, yeah. You Hell would come up with these things, the uh, the junior uh, golf tournament, the junior tennis tournament, all this stuff involving the readers. Grandstand managers. Vote, all vote, these, vote. All these things, yeah, involving the readers. And that, uh, because of the favorite coach contest, that's what put us over the top. We caught the press. And never looked back. Well, speaking yeah. of the press, yes, you were employed by the press for a very short time. Three you, months. Were you uh, one of the people responsible for killing it? <laughs> they were already, it turned out, they were dead, but my contract put them over the edge. <laughs> uh, yeah, 1982. Now, they'd come after me uh, like a year before that, and uh, I wasn't interested in going over there. They... So finally, in 1982, Betty and I were having babies left and right. We needed Just like a, your kids are now. Yes, right. We needed a bigger house. And uh, the plane dealer did not have an extra dollar for me. And and I was doing a pretty good job for them. Sounds you like know, you were doing a lot of things, not just one specific. A lot of things, yes. Oh, my God. It went on and on and on. Like the when we met at the Winter Olympics, you 1980, I was cover, covering the... the, uh, about the the, you know, the major things I covered was the U.S. victory over the Soviet Union yep. in hockey that year. Yep. And I think back at some of those big things I covered, wow. Um, traveled with the Indians in um, 78 and 79. Covered uh, World Series and All-Star Games and all that. Anyway, it went on and on and on back then. So... Uh, well, they would staff so many people for the big events. Nowadays, oh, yes, right. hardly yes. anybody goes. Now they go nowhere. 
And yeah, big events. We went. I can remember it. Uh, 1971, New Year's Day, Nebraska at Oklahoma, number one against number two. Again, a national championship game. I was there. It was, it, wow. It, John, I'm serious. It went on and on and on. Uh, 17 Indianapolis 500s. Saw people burned to death. What did you know about auto racing prior? I didn't even know how to change a tire on my car. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you learn? I mean, did you I just go? To, did you go to India and just kind of camp out during a yeah. practice and, and qualifications? And I went. I would go down learn there the four, four days before the I'd do the, the best, major players best in the I sport? could. Yeah, and uh, and ski and those guys. Yeah, yeah, uh, and just do the best I could. There were guys like me from all the big papers in the country. They were just all like you. Most of them to, didn't know they whether would come, it was they, they would, or they, stuff. Right, they would come out to write it pretty, and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. There were there was a whole group of us back then, guys my age, um, sent from the big papers to do something we don't know anything about. Um, but as long as they kept crashing and killing people, we had something to write about. And all you didn't time. have to know a hell of a lot about it. <laughs> so so you, you came across so many um, major stories that you had an opportunity to cover. You mentioned the Olympics God, where we yes. met, uh, the U.S. Olympic hockey team. Yes, yes. Um, what I'm kind of curious to ask you, Danny, is how, how do you know a, a story is a good story? What, and how do you set about finding that? Uh, and the reason I ask that, there's, there's young people that will listen to this and will want to know about a veteran reporter and how you kind of found stories, what what your methodology lot, lot was, and uh, whether or not you had a preconceived notion when you showed up at a place or if you went with a blank slate and then just picked up what you thought was interesting and wrote I about it. I think you start with a blank slate. Okay. And uh, you, there's, there's no... There's no formula. There's no textbook. You stumble onto things. For instance, All right. <clears throat> Indianapolis. I um, here's this guy in a wheelchair. He was a driver. Talked to him. Got his life story. He was par- paralyzed. He had once been a big athlete, and he became a race car driver. Uh, he was there for his like his second or third Indianapolis 500. He crashed in practice. Car spun around went backwards right into the wall and his whole body was crushed and uh, he was in a wheelchair paralyzed from the neck down he couldn't even flick a fly off his hand so I was starting to talk to him Bob Hurt H-U-R-T Hurt and uh, I listened to his story he's traveling with a, a Russian nurse because by then he's you know his wife had they had agreed that she should divorce him because he was in a wheelchair, a paraplegic. And so I did his life story. The morning of the race, that Sunday morning, the plane dealer took it eight, st- eight columns across the top of page one because this was such a compelling story. This is what happens to these guys. They say there's, they used to say there's no uh, old pilots. There's, well, there are now, but there are no old race car drivers. Well. He was an example of why they said that. Later on, he died in a hotel room alone in uh, Canada someplace. But anyway, you just stumble across. Keep your ears open. Just listen. Um, Another one. I broke the story on um, race day of 1982 from Indianapolis. Stumbling across a 
talking to a guy from ABC's Wild World of Sports. And uh, one of those guys, all well, those technical guys, would go on the air, and he said, oh, yeah, we're going to be in Cleveland next year. What? So I got on the phone. He didn't know any many details, but this was on a Saturday. So I'm on the phone, tr- tracking down uh, people at City Hall, by the guy from the air show. He was the guy involved, turned to be involved. Eight columns across the top of page one in the Plain Dealer Cleveland. that morning. That the, would be uh, the Cleveland Grand Prix. An IndyCar race is coming. To, it became the, the Grand Prix, the Cleveland Grand Prix. I broke that story by total accident. Just have to keep your eyes open. And in boxing, just keep your eyes open and your ears open and you can't just walk into a gym and you can find a story. Yeah. Into, it, a, into a, a pro boxing gym. So that's the way. And softball, we loved softball because those were, oh, a million stories about softball guys getting shot. All the, oh, my God, the, those guys were great. Um, and we, we started doing softball. We were... Back then, we were always ahead of the press. I don't mean to rub it into the guys in the press, but we were just, we had twice as many people as the as the press did, and uh, the, I, I found the wonderful stories in softball. But the town had become softball crazy. You know, everybody seemed to be on a on a bar softball team, mm-hmm. and so uh, yeah, we had. Uh, a guy who, um, oh, now, you know, immediately I go blank on his name, Bob Bobby Reed, an old St. Ed guy. He was the fastest guy that anybody ever saw in a softball uniform. Had all the tools. Uh, great. One of the, he's one of the five greatest softball players of all time from Cleveland. He was always away at softball tournaments, and so his wife got sick of him, and she hired a hitman to kill him. <laughs> wait, yeah. wait, wait a second. This, yeah. Okay, so this guy's this happened out, in about early seventies. So this guy's out playing at, at softball tournaments all over the country. Oh yeah, as, as all a lot of them did. As they all were every they weekend, a lot. they were gone. always gone. Yeah. So he's gone, and his wife says, "Enough She's of this." She's getting fed up with it. So how, who did she hire? What, what a hitman, a hitman. Uh, okay, to, and what was the method shoot him, of to oh, shoot him? He um, waited around uh, at his house one night when he, he came home from a game. Oh, shot him. He yes. did. He, the bullet, a big old bullet, it went through him and it landed and it stuck in the, the roof of the house next door. After bouncing around inside him, it came out. The The hitman made a big mistake. He left a witness. The witness was Bob Reed. It didn't kill him, but it wounded the hell out of him. But so anyway, he, he comes back and he went on to play again near the end of the season. What a guy. And uh, an Iron Man. So this and, is and a guy. She, she went to jail. So did he went to jail. And things were fine. She went away for about five, six years for attempted murder. Oh. And when she got out of jail, he heard she got out of jail. He moved from here to Florida. <laughs> Bobby Reed, what a player. And well, the same with, how about Bob Gain? Bob one Gain, of my former Cleveland just, Brown, shot the, by his wife. This is one of the greatest stories of all time. I, I by the way, he story. survived the shooting. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. well, Oh, no. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, go <laughs> ahead. I mean... Okay. It was just three or four days before Christmas of maybe 1995 or something. And I was here. And uh, here a report comes in. Bob Gain, a former Brown, was killed. Shot. Shot. No, just shot. And there it's Bob Gain. Shot by his wife, Kitty. I knew them both. I was good friends with them. <clears throat> so anyway, later on, Bob survived. And uh, he told me. About it, he said, "Yeah, he was. He'd been. I don't know. He'd been drinking all day long, and Kitty too. 
she also liked to get her snoot in the healing waters. <laughs> and by the time Bob got home, he went out for to run a couple errands that morning. He gets home about 10 o'clock at night, and uh, he, he, she is in his face, and she's got as much in, him, in her as he does. And so Bob finally says, why don't you just shoot me? And Kitty thought that was a decent idea, so she knew that Bob kept a big old, why Bob had to keep a 45 uh, revolver, not a revolver, but a 45 automatic in the next to his nightstand. Um, but he he was a 260-pound uh, all-pro defensive end. Why did why do those guys need guns? Anyway, so she went and got it, walked up to him, put it right up against his chest, and fired. Bob said, I slumped down into the chair. This was in their living room. And I said, call 911. <clears throat> and he said, I waited for the... She, she went into the kitchen where the phone was. Back then, the one phone was hanging yep, on the wall in the, the kitchen. Wall. Yep. <laughs> and uh, he was waiting. He said, I'm waiting and waiting. He said, I will start to wonder, is she going to make that call or is she reloading? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she makes the call. They haul him down to Metro General. He's there for like three or four months. He pulls through. Yes, he did. This thing bounced off every bone in his chest, every rib. Every, yeah. Anyway, so now... They're going to put Kitty in jail for attempted murder. And uh, she couldn't very well plead not guilty. <laughs> so uh, Bob now is getting us all to write letters to this judge in Lake County. I forgot the judge's name. Not the one who gave everybody those crazy sentences. Not Sicconetti. No, uh, not him. No, yeah, yeah. this is a, a real judge. Anyway, uh, not that Sicconetti was. I met him. He was a great guy. But anyway, the, so we have to write letters on her behalf, pleading to don't send her to prison because as Bob said in his own words, you know, if she goes to jail, who's gonna take care of me? I've been shot, you know. And so anyway, she gets goes to a halfway house, believe it or not, the halfway house is the old convent at St. Clement's Church in Lakewood, my old parish, where <laughs> that's where I had the turning point. That's that, that's where uh, Ruby shot Oswald. People would say, let's get back. People right. would say, uh, who got you your job at the plane dealer? <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, she, she got out very shortly after that, and, and they both quit drinking, and they were like lovebirds. They were on yes, another were. honeymoon for years. Yeah. And then they both died within the last two years. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he, he not too long ago, and, and then I, yeah. Bob died maybe three years ago, and she died a couple years ago. Yes. She did. They were yes. they're very warm people. I yes, remember. they were. I remember lived in Timberlake. Yep. Same house that he bought in like when the early 50s when he was playing, with the, playing, when he was playing yes. with the Browns. Yes. Now, you were at the Plain Dealer uh, for all those years, then the press, a very years. short time, and the press uh, closed and what have you. 19, um, June of 1982. Early 80s, you come to Fox 8. Uh, yes. But before we talk, talk a little bit about Fox 8, what were some of the contributing factors you think that has brought the newspaper industry to the point where it is right now. It's in some cases, some of those papers are on fumes. Yes. Uh, a lot of them have been decimated. Yes, a lot of jobs right. affected. Yes. Uh, what, what were a couple of factors well, in, in your mind? Well, um, Craigslist. Oh yeah. Yeah. Craigslist stole all the classified advertising from every paper. Every they were giving yeah. classified advertising away free. Why, why, Whatever motivated this guy, there was a real guy named Craig. This was a nice, a nice thought to give everybody. I may be wrong, but I think he went to Case Western Reserve. Really? 
I could be wrong. He's responsible for shutting down daily newspapers. Yes, because when they, that's the lifeblood of a newspaper, the classified advertising. That's where you make the most money. And um, that's what shut it down. It's the, um, and another, and here in Cleveland, um, Dave Schuyler told me that he feels partly responsible for shutting down the press because when he and Howard Metzenbaum started buying up all of these suburban weeklies, they all became part of the Sun, Sun Papers, Papers chain. chain. They all they stole all the classified advertising from the Cleveland Press, not from the Plain Dealer, but from the press. Okay. Every Thursday, came out every Thursday with everything you need, all the houses to rent, apartments to rent, all of this, all that classified that the, used to be in the press on Thursdays and Fridays. Now you can get it in the Sun Papers, and it's specialized for your area. Um, for housing, you want an apartment, but you want an apartment in Lakewood. But so you don't have to look through all these apartments over Greater Cleveland. The Sun, Lakewood Sun Post will give you what you're looking for right there. And he told me this in the weeks after the press folded. He, he wanted to start another afternoon paper, but on only one condition. If there were a newspaper strike, and if the plane dealer was, was shut down with a strike, he would he would then strike, and and to start strike while the iron was hot, mm-hmm. start and renew an afternoon paper. Wow. And so I was with him during all those weeks while the negotiations were going on at the at the plane dealer. Is there going to be a strike? Is there not? And of course, the uh, union used this threat that somebody would start an afternoon yeah. paper. And so the, the plane dealer caved in and gave them everything they wanted. No strike, and so no new afternoon paper. But anyway, that's all. I, these were landmark events, and sometimes, uh, and I know I was on the inside of some of them. And then for some reason, in 82, the press came and uh, chased me and gave me the money to buy a new house for our, a bigger house. Yes, and great then... big signing bonus, and it lasted for three months. But I had a three-year contract. But I went in our negotiation. I went, why? I want a job for the rest of my life. And I was going to turn it down when they said three-year contract. I said, well, this, no. So finally, I said, oh, what the hell? I'll do it. And so uh, I made a lot of money on the deal. Mm-hmm. And it got us the house we needed. Um, and then, thank God, during that, that brief three months that I was at the press, PM Magazine did a story on me. The first guy ever stolen away from one paper to the other. <clears throat> Although, let's not forget that at that time, the plain dealer all that time was trying to steal Dick Fagler from the press. He never went. But anyway, he wound up with the plain dealer anyway. After Anyway, um, John Safani was the sound man on this yeah. shoot when they did this PM Magazine story. I mean, very flattering piece. And uh, when it was uh, it aired two weeks before the press folded, and it was about a five-minute piece on me, very flattering. Wow! And um, they came and got shots of me and Maddie, Maddie pregnant, and all this. Uh, anyway, um, when John Safani. Then, when all the dust was settling, the press out of business, and and I had uh, the job, Mallwright hired me immediately to do morning commentaries on the Gary D show, 
and on the radio, they wired my house like Radio Free Europe, John. And I would go on the air in the morning in my underwear for three this minutes. This is with London. The, <laughs> with this three-minute commentary on the Gary D Show at 8 o'clock. And then I clicked the switch, my microphone went off, and I went back to bed. <coughs> so, anyway. It's a good thing you clicked that switch. You, they would have. I think we hear that today. It's called Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, John Safani suggests to Mary Horth, she was the producer of PM Magazine, that maybe that I, she, he have said, him do some pieces. He, he, right, have him do some pieces for us. He did okay on the interviewer. So they did. They started me well, a small piece. And uh, Nina Hickey was my producer. I didn't know one thing about television. John, here's what I knew. I knew that Channel 3 was connected with NBC because Johnny Carson was on NBC and I could get him on Channel 3. Uh, but I didn't know between between five and eight, one was CBS and the other was ABC. You couldn't and I didn't one. know which was which. That's how how stupid of me. Anyway, off we go. I keep saying anyway. I guess that's how I return to a subject. That's your comma. <laughs> yes. Um, so that one piece leads to another. Mary Horth would, I mean, uh, Nina Hickey would tell me, now, we, she would go and scout a story, and she would actually write my script. And she would do the interviews, and then she'd say, now here, you can do this voiceover here. We'd go in a sound room here, and I'd read, read this voiceover thing, and, and she'd say, okay, now slow down, take a little easier. Punch she would pose, yeah. play, yeah. And so, uh, and now she said, now to do your stand-up. Now, then we would go out to the scene and do the stand-up, and she'd have this script. See these three sentences here? Can you memorize them? And pick up the apple here and walk over there and put the apple down and say these three lines while you're doing it. While I'm looking at the camera walking over there. <laughs> and I said, Yes, and so I'm, I'm shouting, shouting to reach the camera over there, shouting. He said, Wait a minute. You have this microphone, it's right here on your collar. You don't have to speak beyond this little microphone. Oh, okay. That's how it went. Second year I was there, I win an Emmy, John. <laughs> no, what the hell? Yes. What was the story? <coughs> it was a reunion of the 1964 Browns. Okay. This would have been like the 20 year re 20th okay. year reunion. 84, 1984. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and so I won an Emmy. I've now won the won an Emmy, and that gives me the headline when I die. Emmy. Dan winner. Coglin, Emmy Award winner, dies. <laughs> what else will it say? That's all. That's, a, <laughs> That's He a, won an Emmy in '64. How about he or wrote '84? He wrote books. How many books have you written? Oh, written four. Wrote four books. Okay, why? Uh, I mean, all your col they're, they're like a collection of some of your they're columns not, no, that you kind of polished a, well, or I polished, embellished. Poly right, I took some of those subjects. But they're all and rewrote them. Stories. Rewrote them. Yes. Um, people had said to me, "When you're done, you should write a book about your we said that the, all the, the time. these events in yeah. your life." So finally, I, did. I couldn't do it while I was still working here, of course. And I was still writing for two or three pap um, columns Suburbans a week for papers. And yes, yeah. yeah. And I didn't want to let go of that completely. So now I retire from here the first time. And <laughs> People and, should know there's been a couple yeah, of retirements. Geez, oh, man. Yeah. You, you and which boxer yeah, yeah, are neck and neck oh, in yeah. retirements. And let me see, you made money from the press. How, how many times did you take these buyouts? Anyway. <laughs> So I wrote the first one, and I felt real rewarded by it, and it was was well received. 
that was. was crazy with the papers to prove it. And all of these characters, I had a collection of characters. Junior, we haven't yeah. even mentioned Junior O'Malley, the racetrack character. Dennis Lustig. Den- oh, my God, Dennis Lustig, the world's shortest sports writer. Oh, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, if they ever do his life stories, John Rinaldi would play him, but no, it wouldn't work because John Rinaldi is too handsome. Anyway, off we go. And uh, the first book is well-received. So people then would come up to you and say, you know, you should have written a story about this guy and that guy. They said, uh, yeah, did you ever do a story on the postman? Pete Gone? Your old classmate from yeah. Ashley. <laughs> no, no, no. Whoa, okay. You better write one there. Yes, yes. And uh, I, so I had a whole bunch of those stories. Did one on Harry Leach. The, the Gibbs Shanley's uh, uh, spotter on the Browns broadcast. What a character he was. So I had another book. And then people said, well, what about this guy? Here comes a third book, and then a fourth book. And John, I was thinking, of, I've got enough material to start a fifth book. Are you going to? I don't know, because this now, I'm 81 years old, John. And now while I've taken care of my body like a bronze Adonis, <laughs> I don't have any energy left. And it's a lot of work, isn't it? Not just researching, but just making well, you, the phone calls and interviewing. Yes, exactly. I got to write now. Now at a point where I don't even have anything to fall back on from what I wrote, and um, so I, everything is brand new. But I've got about twelve brand new chapters sitting there in a stack of of uh, material next to my computer at home. Mm-hmm. And now to get started on that is a real commitment for the next year of your life. Wait, wait a second. You just said my my computer at yeah. home? <laughs> I now, hated people computers. should know. People should know. There has been many a Friday night when we're getting ready for Friday Night Touchdown here at Fox 8, and you are cursing this machine, you this know, damn machine. In the early going, I, computers I, 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 that I, I imagine you've come to have a little bit of a well, we've, better we've, we've, relationship. Yeah, we've had a... Um, We've had a meeting at the summit and just decided to try to get along with me. But uh, but there are still, you know, if it if this if it came to this, that if I were to ever be invited back here to rejoin you guys on a Friday night, I would have to learn how to use these computers so that so that I could log myself in. I come in racing in on Friday nights, and I have to wait for somebody to get under pressure of deadline, get up and log me in and. To, Right. And if Jeff, somebody could just, before the season starts, show me how to log myself in so that I could come in and immediately get to work. Everything becomes so, what a rat race then, because I have to wait and wait and wait, and now I'm barely yeah. up against it, finally get my scripts written, and uh, get out there and get wired up. Yeah. One night, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would always change my clothes into, into neatly pressed clothes, because who knows... You come in from the, from the field, get yeah, rained on, yeah. snowed on, and, you're, yeah. and I would get out of my winter clothes and put the fresh, fresh clothes on. And sometimes I, one night I forgot to zip up my fly. <laughs> and that's when we had, um, what's her name, that beautiful blonde girl. Um, well, we had Allie uh, LaForce. Allie LaForce. Allie, Allie, LaForce. Allie, was, Allie LaForce. I think Allie just nonchalantly said to you. Well, she couldn't <laughs> speak. Well, all our mics were live. Right. <laughs> and so she had to wait till there was a, uh, in a long stretch of video <laughs> highlights to, and mouthing the words, your fly, your fly is open. <laughs> oh my God. And, but I had to be, make sure there was enough video left 
for me to zip yeah. up my fly. No highlights. This would have been great if we come back on There's the Four of Us and I'm zipping up my fly. And we're all looking at your oh, fly. Oh, jeez. We've had good times, I'll tell you. John, yes. We, I did write about that in one of my chapters, by yes, the way. Yes, you did. Yes. I've read all the books. They're yes. very entertaining. Thank and you. And it's, it, I hope you can crank out another one, but I certainly would uh, would understand if you didn't. Let me, uh, let's go to one other area before we kind of okay. wrap this up. Any advice that you have for a kid that wants to get into journalism, wants to tell stories, because you made a, lo- a living yes. of meeting people and telling stories, yes. and things have really changed in the storytelling oh, business that we're in right they? now. Yes. What kind of advice would you have? Oh, or, uh, I mean, some people even jokingly say, run as far as you can away from it. But you know, uh, I'm, I'm I love the business, and, and I would yes. just I would warn kids that you know there are pitfalls to it, but it's still. If you look at the positive side of things, there's a lot of great aspects about what we do. Well, there are, John. Stories. You and I have thrived. We've been fortunate. But not we have been fortunate. Um, I don't know what the, the future of newspapers has not existed. That's all going to be... It'll all be digital on, media. Right, exactly. Yep. Internet. And anybody can get into that now. Anybody can start their own... Like we're doing a podcast right here. Correct. Anybody can start a podcast. By the way, you have one starting tomorrow. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> now everybody's got a podcast. <laughs> but now I see what you're saying. Anybody, but you, can you make a living at it? Can you make a living? That's can you make the, a difference? That's thing. Yes. Somebody's got to figure out how to make a living in all this. And I don't know who can do it. There are people, people in this technical world getting rich on these computer things and all this stuff. Look at some of the richest people in the world now. Are people like Gates and all those people with yep. started with computer geniuses. Yeah, all the Googles and the Twitters. But does and... that mean have they already locked up all the all the money and success in this? I don't know. Who's going to... You've got to be pretty smart to compete with... They've set a standard pretty high. Yeah. Do you think there is an appetite in a, uh, for people to... To read long-form journalism, like many of the media companies assume there is not that appetite for that people well, don't want to read. Long- I, I happen to think there is, but well, what are I, you maybe think? there is to some extent. My son Joe, for instance, not my kids grew up in a newspaper family. Yeah. Now they read everything in the palm of their hand, whatever they're holding in their palm. Sure. And he, there was a a, a very interesting story that Mike McIntyre, by the way, has that. I knack. just read it. it, it yeah, uh, you, the one that uh, was about the adoption. That, yes. Uh, I mean, a couple that gave right. up there. It's actually people I know from Euclid, uh, Chris people, Fry. And, that's yes, right. Yes. And I know the other family it, it here in Lakewood. It was a great old, story. old friends of mine. It was a great story that Mike Yes, wrote. it was. And uh, it was inevitable that somebody would hear that story. And uh, and I enjoy well, that my, I read it in an. I enjoy the fact that I read it in an actual newspaper yes, and not necessarily online. Me I held too. that in my hands, not to sound old fashioned, but I read that, I put it down, I picked yes, it back yes. up. That's the essence of what yes. newspapers have been. You just hope that they have a future. That's you know? right. Now my son, Joe, also knows all those guys yep. in that, that that family, the Butler family. They He grew up with all their okay. sons and daughters and knew Kevin. Anyway. He's really, it was over at our house, what, uh, was it last night? I don't know when, but he's reading that story. I said, here it is, Joe, right here in the paper. He said, I'm reading it right here. On his phone. On his, on, on his phone. He's reading the whole thing right there. He can do that. 
Yes, you can. And, you know, David Gray from Gray Publishing, who publishes my books, he prefers to read books on his, the books, the electronic books. He on owns, the Kindle. The, on the Kindle, right, the Kindle. Yeah. He prefers to read books on, he says, I even read them in the shower on this Kindle. Well, so the, there are the some... beauty of it is you can you can be reading something and, and you can also mm-hmm. click on a word, get the yeah. meaning of the word if you want it. It's kind of That's like right. it, it yeah. condenses the effort for you. I still like having a paperback in my back pocket, yes. pull it out, pick it back up where you read it. But yes. still, I think I think there's an appetite for long form consumption of will... stories. I just That's... I hope to God there is. That's evidently the way we're going. But you're right. Herb Score never went anywhere. He always had a, a paperback in his pocket to read on the bus, go to the stadium, on the bus to the airport, mm-hmm. always reading. Um, well, people have that in their back pocket nowadays. It's a phone. Yeah, you, you know, know, you're right. It's the same deal. They I just re- open yes. up their phone, click or you know, go click to where they want uh-huh. and read stuff, read content or go through social media, whatever. Right. But people do the same kind of thing. It's just a, kind of in a different way. I can remember as a kid, I'm in grade school, maybe fifth grade, and I read all of Albert Pace and Terhune's novels about dogs, about collies. And I cherished those books. They were I got them hardbound, yep. $3 each. And I kept them in a drawer in my dresser. I wanted all all my, my Albert Pace and Terhune collie books with me at all times right there in my dresser. Hold the book in my hand. Could I read that? On, well, not at 81 years old, I can't, but maybe... A 21-year-old could do that. There, people are just adjusting to the new world. I guess. Do you have as much of an appetite to just sit down with a book and and read for two hours? I used to be able yeah, to do it. I, can, I cannot do it nowadays because I think I've been distracted by all of the stuff that's yes. online and got to yes. pick up my phone to see if there's a message. And, yes. and, and so I'll, I'll be reading along and next thing you know, two pages have gone by. And I, it's like when I used to deliver the plane dealer as oh, a kid, yeah. I would forget all of the automatic movements that I made right. while I was going up and down that street, putting in back yeah, door, yeah. side door, front right, door, back right. door. And then I think, did I give those papers to the correct really? houses? And I'd go back and check. Of course I did. I was on really? autopilot. Wow. And that's kind of what happens now because yeah. you're so distracted with what's going on that's around right. It's crazy. Yes. Well, I, maybe when you reach my age, I can't keep up with this computer complicated high tech world. I have a my son and I traded um, cars. I got his newer Sienna van, and he took my old one to use to keep in the family for moving stuff around. Sure. And so I can't figure out the dashboard, the radio, the radio. What the? <laughs> cannot figure it out. Cannot. You you just just resign yourself to the right, fact that right. you're, you're not going to listen to the radio when you drive I'm gonna your try, car. I have to listen to whatever station is on there because I can't <laughs> find another one. That's right. There are people that never change their clocks half of the year because they can't figure That's out right, yes. the time change. Yeah. So just leave right. it an hour ahead for half the year you're, you're, and deal with it. You're right for six months, right. Danny, what a pleasure. It's, it's always been great being around you. Look forward to many, many more years. And... Uh, it was great chatting with you. John, it's an honor to be on your podcast. Well, remember, yours starts tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Danny Coglin for a great, great chat. I always have a blast when talking with Danny. All the times we just used to stand by the back door 
while he would have a cigarette and just shoot the breeze about things that were going on in our lives and obviously some of the pranks that he used to pull in his uh, uh, weekly fights with former Browns tackle Doug Deacon as they went after each other. They had practical joke after practical joke that they pulled on one another back in those days. So it's just great to chat with Danny, and I wish him nothing but the best success in the future and hope that we see him back with us next year for another season of Friday Night Touchdown on Fox 8. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you the next time on Tell Talks.